You're listening to the B Fox and B Frank show. We have college basketball leading uh, pretty much every major sports show. We are not going to lead with that story on ours. We want to focus on some positive things first um, before mm-hmm. we talk about adults behaving like children um, and other things. But first, some big time upsets last week. Yeah. Uh, Auburn fell again. Um, and it's kind of where I wanted to start. And big winner last week was the Florida Gators. Yeah. Um, a team that really has struggled to find its footing for much of the year. Uh, strong start offensively. Mike White, Mike Whited all over the place. Um, and it was a, a team that was pretty tough to watch at times, but getting a win at home over a team as highly ranked as Auburn does wonders for this team's tournament profile because they have been hanging out right around the bubble. Yeah, they they desperately needed something. I mean, they were a legitimate top 15 team early in the season, like mid-November. They, they looked the part, they played the part, and uh, they have not been able to get back to that too often. I think this past game in spurts, they showed how good they could be, and they match up pretty well with Auburn, which not a lot of teams can say. Obviously, Jabari Smith is going to be a matchup nightmare because there's pretty much no one in the country that can guard him because he's enormous, can shoot, stretches the floor, can attack the rim, do whatever he wants. But, yeah, poor poor endgame from Auburn really gives Florida a huge win, and this was a week that did not start well for the Gators, a team that desperately needed, as you said, a couple wins to, to keep them right. They lose to Texas A&M, who's not very good this year, and then bounce back with this win over Auburn, which more than erases that and a few other blemishes they have. Certainly hope the committee focuses on the positives more than the negatives. Uh, I know yeah. there's a lot of teams that we've talked about. Uh, certainly a team like Rutger would agree with that sentiment of just focusing on the big wins, not the bad losses. Right. But yeah, I mean, Appleby was huge in the second half here. And really, you kind of alluded to this, but Florida does match up better with Auburn than most teams because they have a guy like Colin Castleton in the middle mm-hmm. and he was able to uh, limit Walker Kessler and, and really win that individual matchup. Um, it's also pretty telling that uh, Florida was able to scheme in such a way that they limited Kessler's impact on the defensive end. We're talking about college basketball's block leader didn't have any in this game. Um, and yeah. that, that is something that no team has really been able to figure out, um, but Florida was able to, um, you know, keep them away from the basket, keep them away from the main action offensively. And uh, I mean, they uh, a little a little fortunate at the end that Auburn just completely panicked and did not run a proper final play. But right after they I panicked, will, yeah, <laughs> I'll the, give I'll give like, a little bit of a pass for that. The the. <laughs> If you just think about the end game, and this is kind of like the first time I'm thinking about it, just in in the hole, like Florida just needed to let Auburn foul them. (laughs) That's all they needed to do. Instead, they take a timeout, throw it away on the inbounds fast, and then, like you said, get lucky that Auburn runs no play, essentially, um, and and loses that game. But yeah, that was (laughs) quite a sequence to end that one. Yeah, certainly not the prettiest, but... Florida will a win is a win. take the results. Um, quick mention of the team they're actually playing tonight as we're recording this. Arkansas still still rolling, still 
moving up the standings in the SEC. One of these teams is going to get a big win, um, but you'll you'll know who as you're hearing this. Um, but we we have our opinions. But uh, two outstanding defensive performances uh, for Arkansas took down Missouri and then really shut down Tennessee, um, who came back with a big win of their own, um, or who had a big win of their own last week over Kentucky. But yeah, um, Arkansas is now, they, they've been the hottest team in the conference now that Auburn has stumbled, now that Kentucky has been missing some key pieces um, and stumbling on their own. They are now just two games behind Auburn for first place in the SEC. And that mm-hmm. might be too large a deficit to make up at this point in the season. But again, the fact that we're even able to have this conversation and say that Arkansas is not dead yet is remarkable and a testament to just how dramatic the in-season turnaround has been for the Razorbacks. Yeah, they, I mean, they were basically left for dead after that losing streak early on in the season. And then to be able to come back and put on this performance is is nothing short of exceptional. And really a lot of credit goes to a guy that I think a lot of people don't like to give credit to, and that's the must bus. I think I think he's still pretty well liked. I don't think he's uh he's gone to the dark side, uh become a villain as certain other college basketball coaches, I think you could say. I agree. I think I feel like the, the media, the bigger names in the media, I guess, don't want to give them as much credit. Okay. Well, I don't follow That's just many my of them sense. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. They're wrong and I don't like them. The mean potential is always high with, uh, with Musselman. Yes. And like, I do always kind of smile a little bit when they cut to him on the, the sideline going bananas with his arm in a sling. Um, it's can't stop, won't stop. Uh, who else do you have as a winner from last week? I'm going to throw Texas Tech out there. They continue to have great weeks. Uh, this is one of the best you can have in the Big 12 this season. They beat Baylor and then finish the season sweep over Texas on the road in a, a tough environment. Um, continuing the push for the Mark Adams as National Coach of the Year run, I know Providence fans out there will be upset if uh, we don't mention Ed Cooley in that race, but both are very deserving. I, I I think there are a few guys that you could give it to this year, and I don't know that anyone outside of those fan bases could be upset about it. I think it's a three-horse race, and uh, those two guys and Tommy Lloyd. Um, yeah. And I, I think that's – anyone else would be pretty surprising unless all three take a major nosedive. Um, but right. Texas Tech especially, what they've been able to do in their marquee wins, they swept Baylor this year weren't at full strength for either game, missing mm-hmm. uh, McCullough again this week. Kevin yep. O'Banner stepped up big time. And it's a defensive team. They put up 51 in the second half against Baylor uh, to really seal that one before putting the clamps back down um, on Texas. Got the sweep there as well. Um, it was a little less rowdy in Austin, but the, the Texas Tech fans definitely made themselves heard and mm-hmm. just – Lockdown defense almost completely took the paint away from Texas um, when the Longhorns had the ball and just Texas was not able to find good offense uh, for most of the game. But yeah, I mean, you can't say enough about Mark Adams, the job he's done here um, Yeah, to, you know, seamless transition of sorts. Continuity was what they had in mind when they 
elevated him from associate head coach to the head man. Uh, but right, I, I think there, there's no way that being in the top 10 this late in the season was kind of something anyone was realistically expecting. And, and again, to, to be as successful as they've been um, with so many key players Mitch missing long stretches just adds to how impressive this has all been. Yeah, it really has been. And and again, I, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but a lot of transfer pieces again this year. And a thing we saw Chris Beard struggle with was getting those pieces to gel and really work on both ends of the floor. And we are seeing it work under Mark Adams. So again, I'm not, you know, this isn't like a take a shot at Chris Beard kind of thing. It's just, we have precedent at Texas tech, the previous head coach. Um, and he, I don't want to say struggled, but he at times struggled to get the most out of his team and his roster. And I think Mark Adams is doing a lot more with the roster or what he has right now than maybe Beard was able to do. And also, like, transfers are such a crapshoot. Looking again at specifically those two schools, uh, yeah. like, everyone that Chris Beard brought in, um, the exception of Trey Mitchell, Trey Mitchell is still a big name, but everyone else was, you know, well-known power six guys. And then Texas Tech bringing guys in from smaller schools. You got Bryson Williams coming over from UTEP. O'Banner, of course, from Oral Roberts, more of a known commodity, uh, but still, you know, step up from Oral Roberts. Adonis Arms from Winthrop. Um, and those mm -hmm. guys have made much more of an impact than the big names have on Texas roster. So, like, you can right. go out and, and get the, uh, you know, the, the best individual guys on paper, but it ultimately does come down to how you're able to mold them together as a team. A lot of that is coaching. Mark Adams has done that phenomenally well. There's a lot more to it than, you know, just like bringing in star freshmen. Uh, you got to do more than just rolling the ball out. Uh, and, right. Yeah, and Texas Tech has done that phenomenally well. They absolutely have. Haven't talked about the West Coast Conference yet, so I'm going to throw St. Mary's up there. They have not beaten Gonzaga this year. That's fine. A few teams have. But if you're able to put together a week in which you are able to knock off both BYU, San Francisco, uh, the main competition for number two behind Gonzaga, it's a pretty damn good week. And Tommy Cousy has been regaining the form that he really had from the start of the season. Uh, one of the standout players at fake Maui, um, Fallen off the national radar a little bit, but back-to-back -back outstanding performances against two tournament-caliber teams, I think, does a lot for St. Mary's in the eyes of the committee. And also, you know, I may be, you know, too naive saying this, but maybe some more respectability for the WCC outside of Gonzaga. You'd hope. I think you'd hope at this rate, uh, I'm not going to hold my breath because it seems well, as either. if no, no matter what happens in the WCC, no matter who they beat, no matter what these teams do, it will always have the, uh, the view of, well, look at the bottom of the conference. How good is it really? Just because there are a couple of good teams, they get to beat up on the bad teams and then, you know, they lose to Gonzaga and are they really even that good? 
And I mean, that's a flawed argument even this year too. Portland is much improved. Santa Clara, we've said, um, yeah, is much improved. Uh, the it's been a drop off uh, for Lorenzo Romar at Pepperdine. I will make no argument saying that that is a good team in Malibu, uh, but yeah, like the West Coast Conference is uh, is plenty strong, and I think it's. It's held in a much different regard uh, than the Mountain West, when in reality should be should be pretty similar. I mean, people forget right. that's where BYU came from. Uh, saw a better opportunity. They're about to leave, but for the time being, I think it's uh, it's advantage WCC because they've always got a team like Gonzaga and also multiple at-large contenders. Love the Mountain West this year, but I think people do a much better job of giving it um, its due and kind of the respect it deserves. Yeah, 100%. But you have heard all of this from me (laughs) for years and years. Uh, The last one I had was uh, UConn. Similar team to, to Arkansas in that it's not completely dead. Uh, for a, a conference title, but it's it's looking pretty bleak this late in the season. Um, but beat two NCAA tournament teams, Seton Hall and Xavier, and Sonogo just continues to go out and put on a show every single time on the court. Yeah, it'd be nice if uh, someone could box him out, maybe. <laughs> like the the big man in the middle that averages like 14 rebounds a game. Maybe you should put a body on him every once in a while. Uh, he, he is impressively good for a sophomore. He has really nice footwork. They, they can feed him in a number of different areas, which I think especially a back to the basket, big man, like he is, it's not necessarily the easiest thing. And I don't think trace Jackson Davis is a fair comparison, but there aren't a ton of guys that you can really compare in terms of being a back-to-the-basket big man, or at least this early in their careers. And I think their games were at least similar in that right. And the progression that they both have had has been extraordinary. Obviously, TJD to another level, but they they play the game very similarly. Not recently. Um, he's <laughs> a little peeved. But, uh, yeah, like, Sonogo was extremely impressive in the Bahamas. Um missed a stretch of time, but since he's been back, it's been very clear UConn's most important player, and yeah, you would think it would be obvious to to box out best rebounders. People struggle sometimes with Shibwe at Kentucky, so. Yes. There there are schools that can understand the pain, I'd say, Um, but weird to think, but uh, UConn not technically dead yet for a, a long shot Big East title. Uh, who else do we have in the winner's bracket? I've got a few. A couple of them are just quick mentions, and then uh, I'm going to give Villanova their shout because of the win at Providence in a very high-level game. They obviously came back and struggled against a, a poor Georgetown team, but a win is a win no matter how ugly it is. Um, but the win at Providence was an excellent game, really good, just – show for the big east of course it was on cbs Sportsnet of all channels which is the absolute worst if your team has never been subjected to it you are very lucky 
Unfortunately, the Big East seems to have a deal for a number of late season games, which makes absolutely no sense. But um, again, like Colin Gillespie is playing at less than 100%. He put up, I believe, a career high 33. Um, if not, it's for sure a season high. Justin Moore did not have it, but still went for 19 and 10. Slater was 5 of 5 from the field. They get contributions when they need them from just about everywhere. Uh, and and really held Al Durham in check for a vast majority of that game, which was and is a, a key to beating this Providence team. So they gave their Big East title hopes a little jolt in the arm, and uh, it was a fun game to watch. Also, they're able to beat Providence in a close game. Yeah. Literally no one has been able to do that this year. Yeah. Um, so that just speaks to the experience, composure Villanova has. But yeah, like you said, very high level game. I did it did draw me to watch CBS Sportsnet, which uh, I don't frequently. Um, but you never want to, unless it's like Army football, the ten thirty kickoff before the rest of the game start. Any other time, it's only because I have money on someone. It's, right. it's never. It's never like these are two good ranked teams. Late night Mountain West. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, get that San Jose State, New Mexico action. Only yep. the best. Uh, yeah, but uh, other quick shout outs yet? Yeah, Iowa gets its first quad one win against Ohio State, giving a little bit of credence to their very high net ranking. Although I think a lot of people would disagree with it still. I'm probably one of them. Uh, but at least Iowa is not going to be that team with zero quad one wins and a top 25 net that gets into the NCAA tournament. And the last team I want to mention is the mean green of North Texas. They are 20 and four on the year, 13 and one in the conference USA. And they just had a huge, huge win at UAB. Uh, That is another great mid-major conference. That's going to have a really fun tournament. And uh, it's, it's one of those where you really wish that a team from that league could get a second bid, but it just does not seem likely at this point. North Texas is probably the only hope they have, and they would have to lose in the title game. Yeah, North. I mean, North Texas has a much more compelling at-large profile than a team I'm going to talk about later. Um, yep. Obviously hurt by no real needle-moving wins in the non-conference, but... I don't really have any bad losses, but yeah, that's uh, it's kind of the life of a mid-major. But UAB, who they just beat, a very good team. Middle Tennessee's having a great season. Louisiana Tech, of course, with uh, the big man, Kenneth Lofton Jr. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to be a one-bid league. But got a win in the tournament last year over Purdue. More than capable of, of knocking off a, a big-time program yet again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's that's all I had. Okay. Um, ju- just to open losers before we talk about um, actual teams, just want to start out with, uh, I mean, Michigan, Wisconsin, Jawan Howard, basically everyone involved in that situation. Uh, yeah. I don't think we we've actually talked about it yet. Um, offline since this happened. So I guess to start, just wanted to hear your your general thoughts on, on the situation and now that we know it, the uh, fallout. It So 
Obviously, it's something that should never happen. The conversation of whether or not a handshake line should take place is the most insane thing in the world. Little kids can do it. Why can't grown adults? Um, but the whole situation, it happened. Obviously, I think we all need to move past it and really stop talking about it. The suspensions are fine. I think Wisconsin should have given a game suspension to each of the coaches involved just to lend credence to the fact that like this is unacceptable no matter what role you had in it. And I think like, I don't know. It isn't Juwan Howard's first like scuffle in a handshake line. This is obviously the most extreme it's gotten. The situation surrounding it is so insane. And I think the worst part of it is the fan base is like trying to defend their guy. Like, why can't we all stand up and say, this is really stupid. Like this should never happen. Move on. This is the textbook example of sports fandom is tribalism bordering on like mental illness. Cause yeah, like I, I, I have, I have a portal more so into Michigan Twitter than I do Wisconsin. Um, mm-hmm. A couple guys were being pretty rational. Um, it's like pretty easy. If you're Jawan, the, way to avoid that situation is just to chill out. And then people in the replies were like comparing Jawan to John Lewis. And he's like, what are we talking about anymore? Yeah. Um, but yeah, like every, everyone is kind of a little at fault here. Um, ultimately this is on Jawan, like for taking a swing at Wisconsin. Like I get it. Wisconsin is by far the most punchable team in the big 10. Um, no one likes Brad Davison. He gets away with a lot. In general, he got away with a lot, specifically in that game. The nice little elbow to the gut on Hunter Dickinson, Mm -hmm. um, among other things. So I understand tensions rise over the course of the game, but then the end of the game, like, Juwan's frustrated. You're pressing. You're trying to squeeze every last drop out of that. That is your right. That's totally fine. But then getting mad about the timeout is is just completely hypocritical um, yeah. that Greg Gard called. And I mean, he had, like Wisconsin's staff was, uh, was not the kindest and, and calmest either, but I did not look at that as, you know, Greg Gard grabbing Juwan Howard to do anything, but just, you know, explain what was going on there and to, to shake his hand, which is why you're, standing there in the first place, but obviously it was received differently. I, you know, I'm not a Wisconsin fan. I don't watch every game, nor do I, you know, I'll, I'll watch maybe 45 per 45, 50% of their season. And that's at a, a passive view. It's not necessarily sitting down and watching start to finish. I feel like, and, and this may be a crazy thing to say, but I feel like Greg Gard is like a well-noted high two arm handshake guy. Like I, I feel like every time I see him shake someone's hand, he's grabbing, their upper arm so like i don't know anything can be taken out of context here i think a lot has i think it's just two teams that were in a big game and wisconsin obviously won michigan wasn't feeling great and then tensions flared way more than they should have everyone reacted poorly and that's what we got out of it like i i really don't see the need for folks to be dissecting it as much as they are it's just a heat of the moment kind of thing let's move on this is a Pruder film too, like slow motion uh, yeah. stuff highlighted. Like, oh my god! Uh, but yeah, like 
Wisconsin's brand is to antagonize people, but uh, that doesn't justify anything that happened. And also, you're right. Like, that is a thing guard does, and a lot of coaches do. Um, it's, yeah. it's a classic, you know, smaller guy trying to get himself on a on more of the same level as as a bigger man. It, it just always makes me think of uh, Horrible Bosses, too. Like, oh, wow, that's, that's a classy handshake. Yeah. You, re- you reach up the arm. So just making the extra effort there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think any, any truly neutral objective party um, did not see that as anything. If you're a Michigan fan, you think otherwise. If you're Wisconsin, you think everything is Michigan's fault. I will say Wisconsin really fumbled the goodwill bag uh, yeah. because – like this, this was clearly, you know, Juwan is the one who punched somebody. There was some background stuff going on uh, with players as well. But at the end of the day, most of the punishment was going to Juwan Howard, uh, to a couple of players on Michigan. But like the the statement that Wisconsin put out after it was, uh, they need a better PR team. Subpar. Uh, like, it, it Kevin was, Warren must have drafted that up because like, it is straight out of his textbook. The one time that it's possible for Wisconsin basketball to be like a sympathetic figure uh, in the national scope and not someone everyone hates for, you know, being the fight in Brad Davidson's. Yeah. Just come out and just laud your, your players and staff for all across the board, only trying to defuse the situation, which come on. Like w- without without anything like happening in the scrum, also just the the staffer who did the suck it, which just oh my like God, yeah, one of the funniest things always plays no notes there. Um, but <laughs> it's not like Wisconsin was just chilling there. It's like oh, this happened out of nowhere. But there's there's a uh, a very real chance that these two teams meet in the Big Ten tournament, uh, which. I'm sure everyone will handle calmly. Um, mm-hmm. But since he's only suspended for the last five games of the regular season, Juwan Howard would be back for that game too, should it occur. So let's root for some fun things to happen in the Big Ten standings. We can we can re- seriously only hope. I I've got uh, I've got some teams here. A lot of a uh, lot of Big Ten theme this week, but I'm going to start in Big Ten country. Kind of alluded to them when you're we talking about North Texas, but Loyola just does not really show me anything that would justify their inclusion as an at-large team at this point. They yeah. added another Missouri Valley loss this time to Drake, which is their fourth in ten games. Which, sorry, like. It'll be it'll be better maybe in a couple of years when you add Murray State and Belmont, but it's just that's that's not an at-large resume um, coupled with no amazing out-of-conference wins, just San Francisco. So I think it's uh, when when the tournaments or going to be playing in the NIT at best. Yeah, they, that's their only hope at this point, and there is. Certainly competition, as we've seen, like they've lost to Drake. Um, they've lost to Missouri State. I think Northern Iowa's pretty resurgent this year. Uh, Bradley has played well this season. So there are a, a number of teams that can knock them off. And Arch Madness, 
the one of the greatest names for a mid-major tournament there is, is always one of the more fun and crazier tournaments in college basketball. So really looking forward to that getting started over in St. Louis. Um, but I, like you said, I don't see the resume isn't there, but not only that, like if you really want to talk about the eye test, like even watching them play, they don't seem like the Loyola team of the past couple seasons. Yeah. It's, it's kind of weird actually, uh, like in a good way, I guess. So shouldn't be looking a gift horse in the mouth, but yeah, like they're kind of being still in that at large consideration because their jerseys say Loyola. And that's, right. uh, I think we've advanced significantly as a society, um, but not far enough yet. But it's, we're getting- uh, yeah, we, we should be giving that sort of treatment to a team like North Texas, uh, who has mm-hmm. just been smoking fools in a, a pretty competitive conference. But uh, maybe if North Texas can make another run in the tournament this year, they'll be afforded that same treatment. But I don't know. I'll always find something to complain about where where smaller schools are involved. That That is my promise to you, the listener. Hey, we stick up for the little guys. We do. We do. I like to, like to tear down the big guys when they play terribly, which several yeah. are right now. Oh, it's another loser you've got. I'm going to go Michigan State. Yeah. Uh, you and I have talked about them. I think this was offline. I don't remember where it was uh just to set the stage for michigan state they lost to penn state credit to us for calling that one offline in a uh separate gambling uh chat but that's you know bryce jordan center very tough place to play people forget and and, uh the loss to illinois over the weekend i feel like michigan state gets a significantly greater uh slack or um leash when it comes to the national media or just fans at large in terms of how good a team they are, than a team like Providence does. And I think they both have had a fairly similar season. It's just Providence is pulling out more of these tight games. And like, yeah, I I think a big portion of this is the fact that Michigan state is used to succeeding and has sustained, sustained success. Whereas Providence, this is brand new to them. Um, They literally have never won the big East championship. So their fans are a bit obnoxious in causing these problems. There, there was even a thread that Providence fans put out there of like, why, do, why does everyone not cheer for us? We're a small school in the smallest state in a basketball-only conference. Like, we should be the typical Cinderella. <laughs> and the replies were phenomenal. So if you can find that, <laughs> check it out. Um, but yeah, like, I think what Michigan State gets from the country as a whole is – the respect that Providence should be getting this year. Yes, certainly. Uh, Providence does play Taylor Swift every home game, so I, I appreciate that. It's my Big it's my game. shout out to the Friars. But uh, you're obligated to say that as a Big East rival. I know it has nothing to do with your musical tastes. Uh, <laughs> it has everything <laughs> to do with my musical tastes. But anyway, uh, I. I agree to an extent. I think in general, Michigan State is going to be given a longer leash. A big part of that, certainly Tom Izzo. Um, of course. yeah. They they have not outperformed their expected wins to the same level as Providence. And I think that's just what everyone is going to keep coming back to. Um, mm-hmm. 
and it's like it's it's incredible. I I don't know if we'll ever see a season like this again. What Providence has been able to do, um, just it's it's a good life hack. Just win all of your close games. Um, but it yeah. is it is so much easier said than done. There are so many variables at the end of games, but they've had. Great experienced players, great free throw shooting at the end of games to close it out. Um, Al Durham providing a little bit of both of those as well. Uh, but yeah, Michigan State just like they are a conundrum in a different way. Like they are definitely overachieving preseason expectations. Yeah. Tom Izzo gets the benefit of the doubt for a reason. Uh, so he deserves some credit there because like, they, I don't know a better way to say this than like, I don't know if they have any good players. And we've kind of talked. I was going <laughs> to say something similar, but I was also going to ask, like, what is their actual ceiling? I, I yeah. can't see them getting past like the Sweet 16, maybe. And that all yeah. depends on draw. I, I think Sweet 16 is fair. Yeah. But they, they have literally one player averaging double figures. Um, and we've, we've talked about this a lot. Like, you put a gun to my head at the beginning of the season. No way would I have said Gabe Brown is going to lead this team in scoring. Um, yeah, which which he is right now. And I know, I, I still think that Marcus Bingham is feeling the the post COVID effects a little bit. It's certainly affected his conditioning. Um, therefore, his yeah. his numbers have gone down a little. But even him, that's not a guy coming in this season. I would have thought, you know, this is definitely going to be our go to guy. Joey Hauser just has not gotten any better since he stepped foot in East Lansing. Um, different guys step up from game to game. Um, you have, you know, Malik Hall off the bench is now one of their best offensive options. Like, it's not even, it's not even like good enough to be a Dion Waiters or Marvin Williams story. Um, still just kind of yeah. chilling there. So, like, again, the end of close games, it's there. There's no real clear path um for right. they want to attack like you you do need a guy you can consistently go to and i mean gabe brown's not that guy like i'm sure he's a nice guy but he's he's not going to be the guy you can put the ball in his hands at the end of a game you like get us a bucket and you know he will um right it's an important thing to have if you want to i mean have success in the big Ten tournament let alone the national tournament but yeah, it's right. they they fall victim to the Bryce Jordan Center. You kind of understand losing the game to Illinois now that Illinois is at full strength, but that just highlights the fact that losing there when they didn't have Coburn or Curbelo is just that much more embarrassing um, and frustrating. But yeah, real real tough week for Michigan State, but. They were able to get a recent win over Indiana, as everyone else has been. Um, it's it's just the the February swoon, patented by by Archie Miller, and now continuing in year one of Mike Woodson. Uh, this team just Kevin is, Willard leaves off Archie yeah. and Mike Woodson pick up. Yeah, this. Uh, This team cannot close games. They cannot shoot free throws. I think they had like a one for seven or one for eight stretch against Ohio State yesterday. Uh, cannot hit threes. Every transfer 
is uh, is performing worse. Uh, Trace Jackson Davis has not had a uh, a good go of it either. Um, initially, it was just struggling against the elite bigs in the Big Ten. Uh, yeah. Yesterday, for the first time in a while, there were several role players who stepped up. Full disclosure, I did not watch the game live because I didn't want my heart to get ripped out. And boy, would it have if I if I had been watching live on the last possession of regulation um, when EJ Liddell was just abandoned by Ray Thompson for a dunk. I would have broken things in my apartment, but <laughs> I just saw the final score and then went back and found things to be frustrated by. But Bench player stepped up yesterday. Miller Cop had his best offensive performance since the Syracuse game, which tells you how his season is going. Tamar Bates had a uh, a strong performance for him in which he shot three for 11, which again tells you how his season is going. But Trace Jackson Davis did not provide anything late in the game, certainly not in overtime when it was a route. Um, cash my Ohio State minus six and a half ticket, though. So that was uh, a good time, but it's uh, it's a little concerning. And, you know, the, the schedule has been pretty forgiving uh, or like there is no reason you should be on a five-game losing streak right now. It, it should be theoretically easy to stop it since you are – playing Maryland at home and then Minnesota on the road and Minnesota has also fallen off a cliff, but yeah, I don't know. The confidence is not there right now. So I am, I'm wearing my Gonzaga hoodie today, hoping for, for some of those positive vibes to come over to the program. I, I really just think Indiana needs to see the ball go through the basket a couple times consecutively like they, they are a team with literally no confidence at this point in the season so much so that their best player and all-american candidate is playing like a shell of himself yeah yeah um it's like parker stewart's really been the only guy who has been able to consistently hit shots but then he's he's struggled in other ways he's one of the five guys who is suspended uh, for the Northwestern game, he completely lost the mental battle to Brad Davison. It was uh, it was really tough to watch. That was that was another game that Indiana certainly should have won. Won the race to sixty nine. Stopped scoring after that. Um, but there, what like everything that that Parker Stewart was doing in that game was predicated over I have to beat this. Uh, this Brad Davison guy um, like the hit a couple shots, but was just in his own head uh, the remainder of the way and kind of unraveled as Indiana did to allow Wisconsin to come back and drive another stake through my soul. But uh, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a challenge. We mm-hmm. are, I, I'm going to obviously pin all of my hopes to Jalen hood Shafino when he hits campus and, hope everyone resurges next year but this is it's kind of one one of my my favorite windows of IE Twitter has been running with this so I'm going to steal it as well like we're we're learning we're learning about the the long-term effects of things and we don't know how long 
the long-term effects of Archie Miller are going to hover over the program. Um, like true. They were running like Warriors offense under CTC uh, with like the 2016 team. And now everyone forgot to shoot under Archie. Everyone is forgetting how to shoot this year. So other than that, the play was phenomenal. So does, does this give you hope that, Jackson Davis comes back or do you even want him to come back at this point? I think the answer is obviously yes. You want him back, but does, do you think there's a chance he comes back? There's definitely a chance because he's not going to get drafted. uh, His current form. Um, Yeah. He he was like, admittedly that was always a bit of a longer shot anyway, because he's a, a tweener with not really an outside shot that he has shown consistently in games. Drains it all the time in warm-ups and practice, but just getting him to shoot it in games is a little tough. So his his, his pro ceiling is a little stilted. Um, I've been more frustrated by Race Thompson, like yesterday, the abandoning EJ Liddell. Yeah. He's pretty good on the last play. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, there there is no one on the team now that I want to not be here this next season. That's at least yeah, there's, a positive. There's no one that's like an obvious cancer or anything like that. Um, like yeah. Z- Xavier Johnson gets a lot of shit from the fan base, but for the most part, he's he's played really well this season, and they just have not had other healthy point guards, so that kind of contributes to it. But right, gotta win the next two, or it's going to be an IT or worse. Not what you're looking for. No. Not at all. Um, the only other loser I had was Wyoming. There are there are good losses to be had in the Mountain West. We've talked about them. Nine-point loss to Ken Palm, 152, New Mexico is not one of them. The pit is not what it's been in past years when the Lobos were actually good. Um, mm-hmm. But it was just the Jalen House show, and, and Wyoming did not have an answer. So... Still a team that's more than likely going to be an at-large, but when you're in a, a non-power six, I think the the margin for error just gets smaller and smaller, and unless you're Loyola, every loss is, is used against you to to drop you a couple of seeds. So yeah, exactly. poor, poor timing for a team that has been playing as well as anyone in the country. Yeah, shout out, shout out Richard Patino. Great, great win yeah. for him. He's in New Mexico doing the thing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've got a a few others remaining here. Um, Xavier loses two this week to St. John's and UConn. Johnny's are resurgent, but still not, uh, I think, anywhere near where they want to be. That makes it four of their last five now that the Musketeers have lost after a really nice start to Big East play and really the season. And they are... Uh, struggling with a tough finish to the schedule. They still have at St. John's, at Providence. They've got Seton Hall and then Georgetown. The Georgetown game, might I add, is the last game of the season. So if the Hoyas go into that winless, there's a lot of pressure to perform for the Musketeers. Yes, that's one of the good subplots of this college basketball (laughs) season is Georgetown going to find a way to go winless for an entire Big East season. After winning the Big East tournament, <laughs> that's incredible. 
incredible. Just but guess. they've they've done it so far. They they've done it with ease so far. So yeah, they uh, have. Credit to them. But yeah, there's uh that last game of the season, Xavier could really be thinking about it. Um honestly, like next opportunity against DePaul at home might be probably their best remaining shot, um, unless Xavier gets all in its own head. But yeah. Woof, man. Owen fifteen so far in the big east. And like, yeah, it's there there is no, no team. There's no team out there on the schedule for Seton Hall that scares me more than Georgetown. <laughs> There's yes. absolutely no team. Didn't want to mention it, but yeah, Seton Hall is I know is there too. Uh it's terrifying. I, I'm hopeful that the boys can keep it together, put together a performance like they did when they had uh went down to DC, but I'm not I re- I will refrain from commenting until that point. But that that is at, at home, right? That's at Seton Hall. It is a home game. Okay. Then again, we held DePaul to like two of their first 19 on Saturday and should have lost. So not not looking great at this point. I was just going to say, in addition to never having won in the Big East, Georgetown also is not one on the road. But yeah, yeah, could be could be a double first. But we will we will not manifest that. No, um, I'm going to put North Carolina or excuse me, Butler first. Butler blows a 19-point home lead to Providence, had a chance to win it. They really just gave this game away. Like, no disrespect to Providence whatsoever. As I I've, I think I've been pretty fair and pro-Providence this entire season. Um, they did not win that game. Butler threw it away. They had infinite chances to extend the lead. They really just could not hit shots, could not put together possessions dribbled themselves out of possession so many times down the stretch, including overtime, missing free throws, doing basically anything possible to lose that game. And uh, sure enough, they did it. And also that was kind of the, one of the few opportunities for Providence to see how the other half lives by playing shorthanded, something that they were able to take advantage of a lot early in the Big East schedule. um, And, it seemed like it was going to be karmic in a sense as Butler was out to a massive lead, really no indication from Providence that they had it that day to be able to mm-hmm. make that up. But just if they hadn't lost to Villanova this week and they were able to scratch and claw their way to another very close victory, it's just team incredible. of destiny, and literally I'm, team of destiny. Big team of Destiny vibes. Um, probably the biggest in the country with, again, just the, the winning every close game part. Right. Um, that's that's how you do it. But, yeah, tough tough scenes for Butler and what's been overall a very, very forgettable season. Yeah, and it, it would have actually been a, uh, a nice moment for them, seeing as they were a team that struggled drastically or greatly this year with injuries. So get a team shorthanded as they have been most of the year and take advantage. That would have been nice to see, but they could not do it. Yeah. So Um, I've got North Carolina following their loss to Pitt. Uh, Pitt is not good. I don't know if people know this newsflash Panthers are not a good basketball team. And this was not a good loss for a team 
that is hoping to get into the NCAA tournament as an at-large. They made up for it with a road win at Virginia Tech. I wouldn't say necessarily made up for it, but they fixed it a bit with that win. They followed it up with a nice win against Louisville, um, who is just meh this year. But they don't really have chances left outside of Duke to finish the season, and they can't afford to add any other losses now with the pit loss on their resume. The only saving grace from that game was just an, an anomaly. One of the, the funnier just numbers related things is since Pitt beat UNC, that was only a Q3 loss and not a Q4 loss. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> that's just playing some 40 chess there. Um, but UNC, very fortunate that it's certainly a blow to the resume, but the the perspective side of things is it can always be worse, but yeah, like, yeah, again, most ACC losses this year are bad losses. Uh, if they were to slip up in either game before Duke, those would certainly be bad losses. And yeah, I mean, UNC is a lot like Iowa, honestly, they are don't, don't really have good wins to fall back on when they have one. They've, they've been able to, win comfortably, uh, which is what the net always loves to see. But yeah, it's just one of many teams that has certainly been hurt by the ACC being very down this year. Although in fairness, they have more than contributed to the ACC being down. So right. it's, a real, it's a real thinker there. Get, gets you your head scratching. Yeah. Uh, another bubble team that did not do themselves any favors was Oregon. 24-point loss to Arizona State. They were swept by the Sun Devils, which is just mesmerizing, the fact that anyone could do that this year that isn't Oregon State. Um, They are now two of the six conference wins for Arizona State. This one was a 24-point loss, and then they go on and lose a heartbreaker at Arizona in a game that uh, they played really well in, but playing really well does not get you into the NCAA tournament if you can't finish follow it up with a win. Yeah, that win part is the the pesky part of it that the committee always seems to care about. But we yeah, the, Arizona we State talks about metrics that matter. Wins. <laughs> Qu- quarterback wins. Everyone's favorite statistic. Um, yeah, Arizona State owning Oregon this year is, is pretty funny. I it am is. not going to lie to you. But yeah, you, you kept... So watching that game, you kept waiting and waiting and waiting for Oregon to go on any sort of run. It just never came. Um, and, yeah, like, everything was happening in Oregon's favor for them to shake off the horrendous start to the non-conference schedule, uh, the horrendous start to Pac-12 play. Yeah. But you're, you're out here dropping games to Cal, now Arizona State, who should not be threatening to anyone. Like, if they somehow found a way to lose to Oregon state, it would be incredibly on brand at this point. Um, but yeah, like all they had to do was just like, they could have, they could have survived a loss to Arizona, obviously, um, especially on the road, but all you have to do is just beat up on the bad teams in the pac 12 and yeah, could not do that. So that's uh that it's very unexpected from, a guy like Dana Aldman um, to, you know, presumably 
coaching advantage most times you go out there and against these teams you have a clear talent advantage so that's right that's got to be really frustrating i can only imagine thank thankfully (laughs) neither of us are in that situation no yeah loving life Um, over here yeah my my last two oklahoma loses to iowa state and texas they give up 75 points to iowa state no less which is just incredible to do They've now lost 11 of 14, and they are surely done in terms of uh, their hopes for the NCAA tournament. They'd have to win out and win a couple in the Big 12 tournament to have a chance. It, it, the Big 12 is just really weird this season because I yeah. I hear Oklahoma, they've, they've just been coming close time and time again, and i just thinking, like, I don't think they're dead like they're literally one game above 500, but um, I mean, it's it's close doesn't count. They are the opposite of Providence. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's two point loss to Kansas. We talked about two point loss to Texas, um, and yeah, one point loss to TCU. Three point loss to Kansas. It's been a frustrating first year for Porter Moser. Certainly, um, you know there were. There were no lofty expectations necessarily in the preseason, um, but I think most people thought that this could and, and should be a NCAA tournament team, certainly after the start they had uh, in the non-conference. But yeah, yeah, Big 12 is, has been unforgiving. And again, the, like Texas Tech tonight – is going to be very tough. The last three games, all very winnable. Um, so there, there's still a path. If the season ended today, they're obviously not in the tournament. But right, I'm I'm not ready to write them off just yet. But they, they do have to. They just have to start winning games. Um, yeah, you know. Obviously, Porter Moser knows this. I'm not spilling any state <laughs> secrets, but there, there's still there's still a chance. There is. It. I I'm going to close the book on them. I'm going to do it. I'm okay. going to say they're done. Okay. Um, last team I've got is Colorado State. They were swept on this in the season series by UNLV. Not just swept, but they lost both games by double digits. The 14-point beatdown at home and then a 21-point loss in Las Vegas uh, this past week. There are, there are good losses, air quote, good losses in the Mountain West. UNLV is not one of them, nor are they two of them. Yeah, Mountain West is cannibalizing itself a little bit. Um, it is. You know, Wyoming and Colorado State, Boise State, the the three teams you'd point to is, is probably having the best chance to make a run. Um, Colorado State and Wyoming definitely have hurt their seeding uh, for the NCAA tournament recently. It's it's going to make life miserable for whatever Power Six teams they end up playing, but definitely right. doing themselves a disservice by losing games they have no business losing um, at this point in the season. Like, honestly, the separation between UNLV and Colorado State is not that dissimilar from Oregon-Arizona State. Like, there's there's yeah. not really much of a logical explanation for getting swept there. Right. All right. Uh, to close the show this week... We've got an interview with uh, our good friend and recurring guest, Evan Mayakawa. Um, 
probably been seeing his stuff, EvanMaya.com, all over Twitter, all college basketball season long. Um, so we've got a, a conversation with him next, and then we will see you next week. We now welcome back to the program, very special guest, recurring guest, Evan Mayakawa. Uh, you have no doubt seen his work all over the internet, EvanMaya.com, the latest and greatest in college basketball analytics. Just wanted to start there, uh, just talking about how this season has been for you and the site in general. So I feel like every time I, I go onto Twitter, I see an official team account citing something or you know, someone from the athletic citing something. Uh, I love to see Titus today citing your race to 69, uh, but he did a deep yes. dive on, but just how, how has all that been and just the, the growth of the site in general? Yeah, it's been, it's been really awesome. I'm just so thankful for the whole process. Uh, so like, for those of you who don't know, I've been running this college basketball website, uh, evanmia.com for um, almost two years now. And it really just started as a, just kind of free time project while I was working on my PhD in statistics at Baylor and just applying what I was learning to stuff that I love college basketball, you know, and it's really blown up into this whole thing. And it's been awesome to engage with, with fans, with media, with coaches who are using it every day. Uh, it's just been awesome. So uh, yeah, this year specifically, you know uh, I've been um, really I upgraded the site a lot, added a bunch of new features. And then I've just been, you know, tried to be pretty consistent with, you know, adding new things here and there and really just trying to engage with people of all different levels in terms of finding interesting things, whether that's evaluating player impact or looking at things like bracketology or this new metric that I've that I've come up with called kill shots, which looks at scoring runs. There's just so many different cool things going on. Um, and so it's been fun to just engage with people and see see what's really clicking. And hopefully it helps uh, for people who are average viewers as well as really um, really big basketball minds or even coaches to all be able to engage with it in some way. The breadth of people that you mentioned there is just truly remarkable. And uh, it's a huge credit to you. So kudos there. Uh, I know we've kind of been in touch for, I think, at least the, the more explosive part of, of your growth, but we've uh, been around to see a lot of it. And I know, Fox and I talk about it quite a bit and, and we love using your site. So first and foremost, it's a, it's a thank you for, for what you do because you give us even more pieces of data and uh, analytic points to, to point to, especially as I try and make my, uh, my arguments a little more worthwhile. Yeah, I appreciate it. And uh, as you said, I was connected with you guys before this really got a lot of publicity. And so you know, I've had a lot of respect for you guys and the work that you would do even before all of this came about. So, uh, you know, I'm really happy to to come back here and, and chat with some of my homies, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Always. Um, you you mentioned in, in your previous answer, one of the, the things that's been getting a lot of attention lately for you, the, the kill shot metric you kind of talked about. Um, talk to us a little bit about that and kind of what you've been able to, to take away from that in the context of uh, some of the top teams this season. Yeah. So this all started actually as a result of me watching the Purdue at Illinois game. Uh, I guess that was a month ago now and uh, noting how Illinois had like a 12 zero scoring run and then immediately gave up like a, another big run to Purdue. And I had seen the same thing happen uh, earlier in the season versus Arizona. And so my thought was, 
is Illinois actually one of the most streaky teams in games uh, based on, you know, giving up runs and going on runs. So I started on this, this journey to kind of quantify that. So basically what I've done is looking at every team's play-by-play data every single time in a game that a team scores at least 10 points without being scored on. That counts as a double-digit scoring run. And using that as some sort of measure of success in games, whether that's the ability to put a team away or on the flip side, if they concede a lot of these scoring runs, uh, the ability to you know give up leads that they've they've amassed. And so I think it's a really interesting thing. It speaks to not only the dominance of some teams, but teams that are more likely to be uh, streaky in games, whether that's the ability to go on runs and give them up or teams that are more consistent that, that don't really give up a lot, don't really go on a lot, that maybe the a lead one direction or the other is more stable. So I've started kind of compiling this information and I've put out a couple really cool graphics that I think sort of group teams into different tiers. So you have a, a really dominant tier, you know, in teams like Gonzaga, Arizona, Houston that are averaging, you know, over one run per game, uh, which is crazy to say that you can almost expect for some of these teams to go on a 10-0 scoring run at some point in the game. That's just crazy. Mm-hmm. And who are also not giving up many runs. I think uh, Gonzaga has given up three all season compared to going on 36 themselves, which is just nuts. And then you have other teams that kind of fall in the streaky category and a great team like that, which would be Wisconsin, for example, they have the ability to go on lots of these scoring runs, but they also give up a lot, even more than they go on. And so if you're a Wisconsin fan, no lead is safe one direction or the other. If they're down big, they can come back. If they're up big, that lead is not safe. And then you have teams on the flip side that are really consistent. So teams like Michigan State or Loyola Chicago, they don't go on many scoring runs, but they also give up very few. So leads are probably more uh, reliable in that sense. So I think those are really interesting trends to point out. One of the things that's hard with this is just, you know, based on the initial way I present it, that's not adjusted for opponent strengths. You have to keep that in mind. But I do think it's helpful to know, you know, especially headed into March, which teams kind of fall in that more streaky or more consistent category, partly because I think, you know, a team being more streaky could be beneficial in games where you're an underdog and you're trying to, you know, come back Or if you're, you know, a favorite, maybe being more consistent is helpful because if you build a lead, you're not likely to give it up. So different, different things like that, that are really fun to watch. And I also think it just enhances the way that we watch games. I've started watching this on my own a lot more now seeing 10-0 runs happen and plenty of other people on Twitter have also tagged me in their different kill shot tweets and whatnot. So I think it's added a dimension to watching the game that's made it more fun. It's been a little bit since Seton Hall's had one of those. Otherwise, I would have been all over it. But yeah, it's it's a really cool metric, too, because the the old cliche is that basketball is a game of runs. Well, now we can quantify that. Like now we can actually take a look and see like, yes, it is. And this is what it actually means. So very cool. Uh, I, I really enjoy that one. And this is this is going to be perfect because I, I desperately need to see some of these lower seeds that have this uh, maybe streaky ability or the ability to go on these double digit runs for uh, my upcoming trip to the sin city of Las Vegas. So get a couple first to 15 bets in there. Yeah. I do think it definitely adds a new dimension to like in-game betting. If you're, if you're trying to, uh, you know, bet on a money line, one direction, or the other, having this streakiness quantified really does help with that. Yeah. And I, I think you alluded to this too, just the, the fan experience um, just, you know, 
knowing that your team is never truly out of it, knowing you can never fully get comfortable, knowing you're going to sit there with a clenched butt the entire game because your team doesn't give up or go on runs. Um, I think that's that's an interesting uh, way to be able to to present that and kind of justify some of the ISS things that, that you noticed uh, in the first place with Illinois. So I, I think it's it's done a lot um, more than than just might immediately meet the eye. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I wasn't even expecting the the level of engagement and fun that people have had with it. So it's been really fun to, to track that. Engagement is a two-way road, though, and this is a great segue for from all of us. So credit to everyone here. Uh, player of the year. The player of the year metrics are really cool, um, but can be controversial, I think, is the nice way to put it, especially with all these uh, rabid fan bases that like to go absolutely crazy about uh where the computer puts their their person or their team so taking a look at it now it looks like chet holmgren and drew timmy are the top two in the country and then kofi coburn is just behind them talk to us about the player of the year metric and then i guess we we kind of asked this to pre-recording about the teams but like who do you think may be overvalued or undervalued when it comes to this metric Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I think starting out evaluating players is there's no one right way to do it, obviously. And I think it really depends on your objective. So, you know, if you're trying to quantify player impact versus who's deserving of being the national player of the year, to me, that's a completely different question, right? Because Mm -hmm. national player of the year brings along uh, certain expectations, like how good is the team you're on? Are you a high usage player? You know, do you have NBA talent? Stuff like that, right? Whereas player impact is more just based on, okay, regardless of what the stats say, regardless of what the usage rate is, how impactful this player on the court. And so my my first metric that I have that's kind of my my bread and butter is called Bayesian performance rating. And this uh, metric is meant to measure overall player impact on the court based on a couple different factors, one being individual statistics. So how efficient are they on the floor and do their individual box score stats seem to indicate that they would be an impactful player. The second is actually looking at their impact on team success when they're on the floor. So for every single possession that they've played, how well is the team playing versus them off the floor? And that adjusts for the strength of all opposition players on the court with them for every single play as well as the strength of all teammates, because that's really important to capture. So, and then it also sprinkles in a little bit of historical information as well for each of these players, because this Mm -hmm. is meant to be a predictive metric, not just kind of quantifying body of work, but actually trying to predict going forward, how impactful are they going to be? And that's especially useful early in the season when a lot of these statistics are kind of unstable, right? So when we're looking at BPR, uh, the the guys who show up as being the best or the highest rating are, this is really just measuring player impact. So Chet Holmgren right now is number one in the nation in BPR, which means uh, he's predicted to be on any given play, on any given, uh, against an average opponent, the most impactful player on the court. Drew Timmy's second from Gonzaga, and then Kofi Coburn's at three, Zach Eady at four, and then Azulis Tubelas from Arizona at five. So those are the top five most impactful players, but I have a different metric that I use that's a little bit more subjective, I guess, because it's kind of, um, it's more based on kind of what formula do I think 
makes the most sense in measuring kind of this player of the year type uh, objective. And that's most valuable player. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there, there are even discussions among what's the difference between most valuable player and uh, national player of the year. Some people even find that to be a different discussion because MVP kind of signifies value brought to the team or how much the team suffers if they're not there, whereas player of the year may not. So even the way that I'm approaching it is probably different than Ken Palm, who has a Ken Palm player of the year metric. He's probably going about it a little bit differently than I do. So my MVP uh, metric combines some of that BPR stuff, but it more heavily weights offensive impact because let's be real. That's what people really care about. It also looks at team that how good the team actually is because we rarely see like a national player of the year. Who's from the 80th best team in the country that never happens. So it rates Mm -hmm. that as well. And it also looks at how indispensable that player is to his team. So this is specifically looking at when that team is no, when that player is no longer on the floor, how much does the performance level of that team drop? And that's also a big component. So When you look at those, it's a little bit different. So guys in BPR, the player impact metric, that are high but do not show up anywhere near the top of the MVP ratings are guys like Dalen Terry from Arizona and Anton Watson from Gonzaga. These are guys that really high impact players, but in terms of offensive production, they're not the first or the second or the third option on their own team, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas guys that fare better in the MVP metric are guys like Zach Eady, Keegan Murray, Hunter Dickinson who are, it's very clear and obvious that they are super important to their team's success. So the top five right now in my MVP rankings, some of it's similar to BPR, some of it's different. Drew Timmy at number one, Chet Holmgren number two, Zach Eady for Purdue at number three, Grayson Murphy from Belmont at four, and then Kofi Coburn at five. So that's kind of a, a snapshot of the way that I'm sort of trying to address these different problems player impact versus most valuable player they're obviously connected but slightly you know individualized i mean your your site loves gonzaga the numbers love gonzaga uh certainly no complaints here uh there's a pretty significant gap um in bpr between gonzaga and the rest of um you know the country to put it bluntly but i think one of the things that just general people on the internet struggle with is not being able to dissociate your algorithm versus your own opinion. Um, And I'm sure, I'm sure Ken Palm gets a lot of that as well. Um, Are there, are there any kind of outliers or anything you've, you've seen personally that, um, you know, you think might not be fully reflected by the numbers or, uh, you know, like B Frank was saying, kind of under overvalued. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> my favorite statement in this context, when someone takes a, a one second look at rankings I have of something and then says that my, my rankings are, are bad is <laughs> that, uh, or that I should throw out my model is that uh, I don't remember who had this quote initially, but something along the lines of all statistical models are use are all, no statistical model is correct, but some are useful. And so that's kind of my approach to this. That is not the 100% truth. It might not even be 50% of the truth. We're trying to predict things ultimately that we don't actually know are going to happen, right? So there's always going to be situations where I'm not completely happy in my own opinion with the ratings, but that's, that's why I do objective statistics, right? It does help abstract my opinion out of it. And I think that makes it a little bit easier to take when people have issues with it. 
Uh, but I, it's a great question. I think Gonzaga is a good starting point. I don't necessarily think personally that they are overrated by my system or by Ken Palm's system. Uh, you know, if they were a little bit closer to the rest of the field, I think that might make more people happy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they, they should be. Um, I think it's just kind of a, until Gonzaga wins a national championship, they're going to have haters everywhere. So that's just kind of how it is. A part of me wants them to win for that reason. So they can, the monkeys can get off my back, so to speak. But, uh, you know, I don't actually really have a rooting interest in this besides some of the schools that I've been affiliated with in the past, but there are a few teams to me that I do think, uh, you know, consistently over the course of the season, I, you know, based on my own opinion might be higher uh, rated higher or lower than they should be. A great example of that is Auburn. Auburn has been, you know, compared to their performance compared to the AP poll ranking has been rated pretty low, low in the uh, predictive ratings. I think right now I have them 11th in the country. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, now do I think they're, there are 10 teams that are better than them going forward. Probably not. Do I think they're the number one team? Probably not. The truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but that's an example of a team that I, you know, probably deserves, if you want to put it that way to be higher. Um, LSU is a team that's on the opposite end. They had a really, really great hot streak. Uh, and then they've cooled off a lot recently, especially on the offensive end. They're still 16th right now in my team ratings, which I think is probably a little high based on what, how I think they're going to go doing do going forward. Uh, maybe one other team worth mentioning is Houston. That's been kind of an interesting one because they, uh, you know, lost their two best players back in December. Marcus Sasser being right now, or based on where he his uh, season ended, a top ten most impactful player in the country according to BPR. Uh, and my ratings do account for strength or uh, injuries, and so you know it does account for the loss of him and Traymond Mark. But they still do have a lot of depth, and so they haven't dropped quite as far as some might expect. And so right now they're ninth. Uh, in the country. And I think they probably belong more in the 10 to 20 range. Uh, So yeah, I think that's another example of people are probably going to think Houston's not going to do well until they make another final four. So, you know, different examples like that are always kind of interesting to watch. I'd agree with that sentiment overall. Like we've had discussions at length about Houston. Um, Both of us were relieved not to see the Cougars in the top 16 reveal over the weekend they have the ability to play there, but I just don't know, like you said, with, with those injuries where they can get Auburn certainly is probably a little bit better than BPR hat. Your BPR has them uh, LSU. That is, that is quite a team. Um, but I, I was taking a look as well at the, uh, the bracketology too. one of the hardest things in the world to do as someone who, who tried it for two seasons and not necessarily gave up, but didn't want to put the time in to, to really figure it out. Uh, I will take your bracket any chance I can get it. Like if this is how it turns out, I would take it in a heartbeat. Um, Seton Hall at a 10, avoiding that eight, nine game would be just perfect. Yeah. My, my bracketology is, is not the thing I spend the most time on, but it is built on a machine learning algorithm that basically has been taking all of this historical seating data from the past based on different mm-hmm. team metrics, different performance in, you know, quad one through four and all that stuff. And, tries to predict as best it can uh, using this machine algorithm, machine learning algorithm where the committee is going to put teams. It's never going to perform quite as well as the guys who are spending 10 hours a week, constantly updating their brackets, just because I do think there is some element to group think nowadays with, with bracketology, given how many bracketologists there are, you know, the bracket matrix consensus bracket is always going to be pretty close to what the committee uses and also influences the actual people who are doing it because they're always referencing it. 
Uh, mine doesn't, obviously. So I do think that in that sense, you know, um, it is interesting to note there. But I do think it it does help um, maybe predict for some teams more. Uh, it, it It's not as prone to overreacting to recent performances. I guess I put it that way. Um, so I do think it's helpful to kind of look at it as a, a sanity check sometimes. It's a good barometer in the least. Yeah. I think it's very idealistic and I love that. Um, but I, I, I'm kind of with you in the sense of, I think group think will win out a little bit, but I, the, the, the top is certainly accurate, but going down kind of some of the smaller schools that we, we love to root for, you know, all the top seven seeds for teams like Murray state, Boise state, Colorado state, North Texas as a ton, all deserving. I think all logical, but I just know the committee will never see it that way. And give teams the benefit of the doubt um but this is this is what the bracket should look like um yeah much closer to this than you know all those teams getting 11 seeds in north texas probably getting a 13 yeah my my bracketology does not care about the team name yeah. uh so you know i think if we swapped some team names you know high conference to mid-major conference you know i think you might see some some changes in that consensus bracketology. That's obviously not the case with mine. It doesn't care what their name is or their history. So, you know, I don't love Indiana being out either, but I don't have a counter argument. So <laughs> yeah, so I, I'll stay on that. you know, I, I feel like, you know, for your sake, we, we might spend a moment here on Indiana. Um, yeah, I saw some discourse last week on Twitter about how, trying to explain why Indiana fans are were so nervous, even though they were safely in the field as of a week ago. And just given how how many seasons in the past they've sort of collapsed down the stretch. So I certainly don't envy Indi- yep. <laughs> any Indiana fans' uh, perspective. I do think one thing that encourages me about the Hoosiers is that, uh, again, my, my metrics are predictive. And one of the things that I have personally made a choice to keep in that other metrics like Ken Palm don't, is I do not uh, completely downweight my preseason priors at any point in the season. They certainly become less informative, those preseason projections for each team, but they do increase the predictive accuracy of all of my you know, game predictions and my team models and whatnot. So I think part of that is uh, leads into the fact that Indiana is 27th in the nation right now in BPR, which is higher than all of those other team sheet metrics. You know, Ken Palm has them 49th. You know, strength of record, certainly 56. That's not great. But the fact that they are 27th right now, to me, means that they are more likely than other teams in their, you know, similar places on the bubble to perform well down the stretch. Obviously, that's not. Um, but but they do look like they're they have what it takes uh, in terms of, you know, how they've evaluated so far and and what they're predicted to do going forward. So we'll see. That was very nice of you, and I appreciate that. Um, he needed that today. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep a healthy dose of pessimism uh, for as long as I can until it's Indiana soccer season again. Um, again, website is is Evan M I Y A dot com. Incredibly versatile. If you've never checked it out, you know as as Evan has been talking about this entire time, three separate player rankings or lineup rankings, um, all kinds of good stuff for you to explore that obviously updates uh, throughout the season. Yeah, game predictions as well. Um, maybe something to be interested in if you're if you're a gambler, um, hypothetically. But uh, there, there's so much going on already. Is there 
is there anything you're kind of looking to the future to to expand on the site or anything that that might be the the next big project for you yeah i always feel like i have 30 things down the pipeline and uh, honestly part of me always looks forward to when the off season hits because then i can start to really tackle some some bigger projects uh related to it um I, at some point yeah i i have a bunch of more sophisticated tools that are slightly more geared towards coaches that I would like to add. And I've been in communication with several D1 coaches who are kind of looking to use some of these features. That's not something I'll have for this season. It's hopefully something I'll have for next stuff like that. I also have always more improvements to things I want to make new features, you know, stuff like uh, having a, a clutch player rating, you know, looking at players that are specifically good in clutch time, you know, in the crunch time um, that that may not evaluate quite as well when you're looking at whole game samples. I think that's really interesting. All sorts of stuff like that. I'm really always thinking of new things, writing them down, and then uh, just trying to chew off stuff when I can. Oh, that's that's very fair. I mean, it's it's an amazing site already. We're excited to see it continue to grow and, and just become a, a staple of the college basketball world, certainly the college basketball internet world, um, as it is quickly becoming. Uh, I mean, we always love having you on the pod. Always love talking to you. You always teach us many things uh, when you're on here. So we do appreciate helping make us and, and the rest of the viewing public smarter. But uh, Evan, really appreciate the time. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on. And I also appreciate you. I've seen, you know, you guys are regularly including my my metrics in, you know, team comparisons and whatnot on Twitter. And that's really awesome to see. So I love that. And I really appreciate that.